This Week in Health Innovation is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive both on the ground and in the virtual space for major trade show, conference, and innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACOWatch.com, and your host today. My guest is Don Crane, the President and CEO of America's Physician Groups, also known as APG. APG is the nation's leading professional association representing medical groups and independent practice associations practicing coordinated care. So, Don Crane, welcome to the show. Well, glad to be here. Thank you, Greg. For those who may not know about you and and what you're doing at APG, give us your background and then pivot to the genesis and mission of the organization. Glad glad to do that, Greg. So I am an attorney by training, but for the last almost two decades now, I've been the CEO of, of now APG. There were earlier names and iterations, but we're America's physician groups. And as I think you and many of your listeners may know, you know, we're a professional association of physician groups all across the country. I think we're in 45 states, 300 plus groups, uh, 44 million patients, 95,000 physicians. It's a big swath of the American healthcare scene. And um, I have the good fortune of being the CEO of this organization, and what makes it so unique and our members are that we all are committed to the value movement, right? So some of our members uh, manifest that by the payment model, which is to say they're capitated or they're in risk-based products, but all of them believe in integrated care, coordinated care, and being accountable basically for the cost and quality of that care accountable for the quality by reason of various performance and quality measurement programs and accountable for the cost by virtue of the fact that they are effectively on a budget. They're paid prospectively for the work to be done for a given population, which incents them to, think of this now, Greg, keep the people healthy, right, as opposed to just taking care of them when they're sick in a reactive way in a way that includes prevention, they're interested in keeping this population healthy. So um, we're in the van, we're in the, I think, uh, the tip of the spear and the vanguard of that movement right now, which is really so timely and so topical given the the COVID crisis. So um, anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. (laughs) And knowing a little bit about the organization, uh, you were initially domiciled principally in California, and most of your constituents were essentially risk-bearing medical groups. So I think that the name change, which includes physician organizations or physician groups, was intentional, no? Oh, no question. So half, perhaps, of our members are California-based. Some of them have business in, in states outside of California, but very definitely our roots are in California, where this value-based movement really has, but it's now, you know, moving across the nation fairly rapidly, and with it, we too are moving. So we made that move, I don't know, four, five, six years ago now, and changed our name and so forth. And so we're very busy in Washington, D.C., with our advocacy and uh, trying to, you know, proliferate uh, coordinated, risk-based, accountable care across the nation at a time when it is so 
unfortunately, but also dramatically evident it is needed. And before we pivot to your panel at the virtual summit on health system recovery from COVID-19, talk a little bit about what APG's, America's Physician Group's top priorities, uh, given the current disruption we're witnessing are in terms of advocacy and stakeholder engagement. So, you know, I think the word is acceleration. Our mission sort of hasn't changed. It's just, as I say, you know, it's interesting to pick the word unfortunately, but we are in a pandemic that's taking a lot of lives, uh, but it is dramatically more important, our mission. So prior to COVID, we were all about um, trying to proliferate coordinated uh, risk-based care. There's an awful lot going on in that regard across the nation with ACOs and a lot of CMS pilots and so forth. So the movement's been moving along nicely, um, not too fast, I'd say, not faster than we would like, not as fast as we would like. And then all of a sudden, kaboom, COVID. And what COVID has done is dramatically created the, the, the business case for our model. So, you know, we've long said that we're, we deliver care that's of lower cost and higher quality. And there's a decent amount of data to support that. But it hasn't been compelling enough really to cause everybody to, in an overnight fashion, move away from fee-for-service and immediately adopt risk-based models. But now COVID has, is sort of bringing the drama to, to the fore. I mean, um, across the country right now, physicians and physician groups, particularly primary care physicians, those that are in the fee-for-service world where they're paying, being paid per click, they are in deep financial uh, straits. So uh, anecdotally, there's primary care groups closing their doors all over the country. We saw in my, my panel the other day some data uh, furnished by AMGA. Don't have it in front of me now, but cash reserves are drying up. Elective surgeries are, are drying up. Elective visits Basically, patients aren't coming into the physician's office, nor are they going into the hospital voluntarily. Um, there's a great fear of contracting the disease, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, uh, uh, the consequence of this is these physicians that are wedded to fee-for-service income are going out of business. Their volume is dried up, and so too their revenue, and they can't meet their expenses, and, expenses, and they're closing their doors. That's the fee-for-service world, which we have long sort of criticized, frankly. Shift now to those groups that are in prospective payment models, and of course the best one to, to identify probably is capitation, where they're paid for their population in advance on a, like a per-member, per-month basis. That prospective payment is made sort of automatically, irrespective of the precise number of visits or the health status of the population. And so um, the revenue is coming in, and yet the workload, frankly, has continued and in some instances dropped off. And so what we see is a very resilient model that is working well. And it's, proof of that is this amazing movement to telehealth that's going on where some of my members have over a given weekend moved entirely away from in-person visits or, you know, 70, 80% of their work will move from in-person visits to telephone visits, 
enormous amount of outreach where my members are now delivering food to their members and addressing other social determinants of health. There's an awful lot of remote monitoring going on, home visits, hospital at home programs. So all of a sudden we're seeing like on an overnight basis these strong groups, strong by reason of the model, are able to deliver care in the midst of a, the biggest public health crisis we've seen in a century. And so we're all seeing that and appreciating. And, of course, it doesn't take a whole lot of, you know, uh, you don't have to be a real genius to go, well, maybe that's the better model for the future as well. Good not just for public health crises, but good for the country, uh, a, a really a better model. And so that's the conversation that is taking place in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And, of course, we're at the table and trying to lead that conversation. And have you found, given this disruption, that there's more interest in this alternative model that's been around yeah. for quite a while? Yes. Of course, now this has just popped up. So we're talking about now, you know, this all sort of started to hit, oh, let's say in March and April. And now the policy wonk papers are starting to come out, you know, in May and June saying, hey, this is a sentinel event and we should now pull the band-aid off and go ahead and in one way or another, in a highly accelerated fashion, flip away from fee-for-service and into value-based models, paper after paper, article after article. It won't be long before it's on the desk of Congress. And I submit it will be, hopefully, I think is the case, done so in connection with additional relief funds. So I think Congress will find it necessary to increase the amounts given under the earlier CARES Act, double down on producing financial support for physicians, but, and here's the key, condition it on those physicians moving into value. So either joining a value-based group or committing to enter into risk-based contracts, we're not sure of what the you know details will look like. We're, we're, we're putting our thinking caps on it about now, but it, there's never been a more, you know, unfortunately, time to make this move right now. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of uptake. Physicians, they don't want to live in a fee-for-service world where you go bankrupt. They'd prefer to take good care of patients and take care of populations. And this is their chance to move. It's the chance for employers to move. It's the chance for payers and government to move. And so we may be on the cusp of um, really, you know, major change in American health care. And I indeed hope that's the case. So I heard uh, earlier today that this really is a leadership leadership moment, quote unquote. Uh, Does this apply equally to, shall we say, the commercial side of the business versus the government sector, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera? So I think think the answer is yes. I mean, you know, when a primary care physician goes under, he does so and so too all of his patients from all programs. I mean, his doors are closed. So the the purchasers that are buying, you know, commercial coverage, all of a sudden their employees don't have a place to access care. And in Medicaid, uh, enrollees don't have a place to access care. And in Medicare, seniors don't have a place to access care. So it's across all programs and model. So uh, what can you tell us about that uh, panel that you uh, chaired, the physician and physician organization perspective in this uh, COVID pandemic? What were some of the key takeaways there? And mix that up with some of your thoughts. Who were you talking to, your faculty, and who were some of the outtakes? 
Yeah, no, it was a really an amazing opportunity. So I had the good fortune of talking to two panelists, each of whom is the chair of a major professional association within the United States. So the first of which is Grace Terrell, who's the chair of the American Medical Group Association, who I think delivers care to something like a third of the population in the United States. And I was also speaking with Don Revan, who's the chair of American Physician Groups, my organization, who likewise probably covers about a third of the population. A lot of overlap between these two you know, friendly and kindred associations, to be to be sure. So in, in talking to them, you know, initially what I was trying to tease out was a recognition that we really are in difficult times. I mean, it's easy to see that in terms of patients and the pandemic, but the point that I think we all made was that, look, we're only four months into this now and we have you know, physician and, and physician groups looking at bankruptcy, right? What then, I asked a couple or three times, is it going to look like in four or eight months? And, of course, the obvious answer is it's going to be a whole lot worse. I mean, if these trends continue, if patients continue to stay away, and I fear that that will be the case, we have spikes going on, I think, across half of the states in the, in the nation right now. Uh, a real resurgence, a feared resurgence is underway right now, and so patients are going to stay away. So I think it's entirely predictable that we're going to have more and more physicians in really dire financial straits in four months, eight months, and 12 months, which begs a lot of questions like, very generally, what are we going to do about this? You know, is it a case of simply sit back and accept relief from funds from Congress? Is it moving from a flawed fee-for-service model into a, a, a much more resilient, durable, you know, value-based model. You know, what do we do was the question. Because I actually sort of don't think that the recognition of the, of the challenge we face is yet hit strongly enough that we've got, you know, what's, what, what's 21 going to look like? And what is 2022 going to look like? And that this is both an imperative but an opportunity to make the kind of systematic system changes that I've that I've been alluding to and moving into value. So that was a big part of the conversation with the panel. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to This Week in Health Innovation. My guest is Don Crane, the president and CEO of America's Physician Groups, the nation's leading professional association representing medical groups and independent practice associations practicing coordinated care. And where do you see maybe the headwinds and tailwinds here? Who's perhaps at the tip of the spear from a leadership perspective? Well, you know, very, very good question. I'll start by saying historically, you know, headwinds have existed in across many domains. I mean, patients not wanting to move into HMO products because they prefer freedom of choice, the ability to go to any physician anywhere at any time with any complaint and have somebody else, some insurance carrier or, the, or some governmental agency pay for it. That's produced a certain level of resistance, I think. Physicians themselves, some prefer to be paid, you know, per click. It enables them to do more and more and more work to elevate their income and so on. So there's been resistance in the past, but as you now race forward, I think that resistance is going to evaporate. Physicians would much prefer to be 
on a kind of a capitation model, which for many of them is far more like salary. It's like moving away from commission and into salary, something stable, dependable. Um, and so I think the physician resistance of old will shrink and maybe disappear. Patients will quickly realize that you don't want closed doors, you want open doors, and you want all of the virtues, really, that's in a coordinated care model with a primary care physician serving as your concierge and your guide and your confidant, your consultant on when and where and how to access care. They're going to want that. Employers are going to be looking for greater value because Lord knows they're not finding it in fee-for-service PPO now. And then I think I'd probably finish with the government, which is itself, you know, our, our U.S. government, I think our Medicare trust funds, you know, historically it's always been they're going to go bankrupt in 17 years and 19 years, and then recently it was down to five or six. Now there's talk about them depleting their funds in like two years. You know, we know generally that the deficit now has and will soar federal government, state government alike. With that deficit, increased amount of debt, and then the debt service that goes with it. So the financial plight of federal and state governments, both, although I'll probably focus mostly on the federal government, is going to make them look for you know, a more efficient, dependable model. And that's really what my members represent, the payment model and the care model. It's the model for the future, and that is becoming conspicuously the case. And so I think we're going to see headwinds disappearing fast and lots of and we've got Lord knows we have lots of tailwind already. <laughs> I love the expression pay per click, which really is about fee for service point of care payment, which is episodically based, and that the broader view here is the capitation or percent of premium or whatever yeah. the prepayment basis is. So, sure, it sounds like some of those headwinds are, will be dying down as this progresses, and we have no idea how long we're going to be. Uh, in a situation. So what's happening with all this abandonment of uh, elective uh, procedures and essentially a stoppage in, uh, in the volume, patient volumes? The payers are sitting there uh, accumulating an awful lot of non-spend, aren't they? So they are. Lots of things are happening. So on the payer side, you see health plans, not unlike some of my members, but probably to a greater extent, not having to pay for care that patients aren't accessing and that physicians aren't delivering, those that have closed their doors or those that have their doors open. If patients don't want care, then health plans don't have to pay for it. And so, indeed, their profits are up. They're faced actually now with rebating to their customers and their employers and so forth, monies uh, that are sort of excess profits. There are MLR rules out of the Affordable Care Act that require them to do that very thing. So you've got health plans having to disgorge you know, monies they're not using, frankly. So that's so interesting. I've mentioned here what my members as physician groups are doing, you know, a whole lot more outreach and so forth. Um, and we talked about patients, but the, 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 the worrisome part of my answer to your question is the sort of pent-up demand that we're going to see based on those non-COVID patients that have chronic disease that are not having their issues either 
uh, diagnosed or attended to right now. So think about, you know, those that have had heart attacks and strokes and other chronic disease issues and so forth, not accessing care. And, and we've, we've seen that. So the worry, time will tell, but the worry is that four, six, eight months will go by and these diabetics and hypertensive that have significant needs won't have those needs addressed their conditions will worsen, and then the care will become more acute and more expensive. So some have likened to this to being a sort of silent sub-epidemic, okay? So we have COVID, which is obvious, but beneath it, not, not so visible, is this kind of pent-up demand that's going to occur. So we're worried about it. Um, we're ready for it, we think. My members are trying to mitigate it and prevent it through outreach right now. So they're calling their patients and sending out prompts and reminders and so forth. And that's, again, a virtue of our model. That's their job. That's their business to do that kind of outreach and that, you know, proactive outreach. Uh, but that's not happening in the fee-for-service and the PPO world. So there's a real concern that we're going to have kind of a double whammy visited upon us some four, six, eight months downstream as we continue to have COVID and then have all of the non-COVID, but worse. So that's that's the concern. Right. And that sounds like perfect rationale for the health plans to basically watch and wait. How much will the virtual care, telehealth, the remote management stuff alleviate some of that projected burden? Well, quite a bit. You know, it's been really interesting to watch telehealth explode overnight. So, I don't know, for a decade, almost two decades, you know, we've been talking about telehealth. And there's been some small amounts of it, not a lot, because it hasn't sort of been recognized by payers and it hasn't been funded and encouraged. And more recently, it's imp- that con- situation has improved only a little. But now, dramatically overnight, so indeed, you know, CMS issued rules and waivers that permit telehealth, right, and have agreed to pay for it during the COVID crisis, during the PHE, the public health emergency, which I think runs until some date in July. It could be July 30 or July 20. I really don't know. But it creates this most amazing situation, which is to say, so my members overnight of, of adopted telehealth, right? And they've been in a position to do that. I mean, they've got most of the technology necessary to do it. It's a little trick getting patients to do it. Many love, most love it, but seniors have a little trouble with it, I think. But now we move forward in time and, well, are we going to truly, you know, sort of honor and accept telehealth as a permanent fixture of American healthcare? or only as a feature of the COVID public health crisis is the question on the table right now. And we will soon be encountering answers to that. That debate's starting to pay out in, in play out in Congress. At the moment, telehealth services in the main, I'm generalizing, but certainly in the case with Medicare, are being paid at parity, in other words, the same amount as an in-person visit. And so the numbers of telehealth visits have skyrocketed. That's probably, that's that's undoubtedly been good. In fact, I would say the more visits, the better, frankly, in terms of keeping the the population healthy. But I think that the, those like in the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, are worried about such heightened access actually 
generating more cost than was previously budgeted. So there's talk about reducing the amount of payment for telehealth and rolling it back some, which would be a shame, but I can see it happening. And again, it kind of underscores the importance of prospectively paid groups who can do as much or as little telehealth or as much or as little home visits as they want to, or as much or as little, whatever care is necessary to get the job done within their budget. So anyway, the future of telehealth is not yet clear. And so that debate is going to play out over the course of the next few months in in Washington and elsewhere. Uh, And we we will be watching it and advocating a lot. Yeah, and clearly if this is just another layer uh, on the onion of spend, versus preemptive uh, uh, care that's actually delivered virtually and uh, doesn't necessitate uh, sort of inpatient or uh, in-office visits, then maybe it'll demonstrate its value. But somehow in our industry, it seems like every, every innovation just adds more cost. Many do. I, I, would, I would quarrel with that. I would say some don't. And in, in the case of telehealth, I know that a telehealth visit requires less in the way of overhead than an in-person visit. A telehealth visit can be done without any particular bricks and mortar. And I think that's what concerns people, that there'll be you know, excessive payment for something that has a lower cost basis. My, I think, general view is that except for the sort of worried well and the frequent flyers, those that access care more than they should, whether in a doctor's office and an emergency room. And indeed, that exists, and I don't mean to to make light of it. Basically, I think telehealth gives the opportunity for a physician and a patient to have a better working relationship, frankly, and in a lower-cost medium that will prevent illness. Early identification, early intervention, and then basically lower cost as a result. Keeping patients out of hospital, treating them over the phone in homes is really where we need to go. Supported by, you know, Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure and blood sugar and oxygen readings and so forth. That's the future. I think we need to accelerate that, and it will save us money. You know, the, the technology will cost some money but it won't be anywhere near what the savings are associated with keeping people healthy and out of hospitals. So we've got a few minutes left, Don. I want to pose something to you that I'm actually going to steal from um, one of our colleagues, Dr. David Nash. It's January 2021. You're sitting in the president's office. What essential policy guidance would you provide to him or her? I've already, I think, you know, pontificated a lot about flipping from fee-for-service to value. So I'll move that to the side. And I think your question then is in the realm of what are we going to do in terms of social determinants? What would I advise the president at that point? First, what I think I would say is 90-plus percent of the health status of the population and of individuals is determined by things other than medical care. Medical care represents 10, at the most, 20 percent of the health status of an individual or a population. So we know that the other 80 or more percent is determined by environmental factors, sometimes genetics, sometimes employment situations, but mostly what we are now talking a lot about, which are social determinants of health, so access to food, transportation to uh, medical care, housing, and on and on, and most, most importantly right now, uh, this very day, 
institutional racism. So disparities associated with racism are utterly interwoven uh, and in the in the fabric of the health of a population. So you see that right now where African Americans I think are experiencing covid infection at vastly higher rates than Caucasian populations, 2 to 4 times as much. Well, why is that? There're probably multiple reasons, but one of them is good old, you know, institutional racism that manifests itself in less access uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you really can't separate social determinants, including racism, from health. They are intertwined. And that is the observation that we're all making these weeks right now. And so if I were talking with the president in January 2021, I would say change the, bit, the, the payment model, as I've described, but let's also do a better job of addressing social determinants of health. It's vital to population health, which is our middle name. It's part of our model. And so let's get to it. And that is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Don Crane, President and CEO of America's Physician Groups, for his timely insights during this still-unfolding COVID-19 pandemic disruption. For more information on Don and APG's work in the value-based healthcare economy space, do follow them on Twitter via at Don Crane, D-O-N-C-R-A-N-E, and Amer Physician Groups, that's abbreviated to at A-M-E-R-P-H-Y-S-G-R-P-S, respectively. And for more information, including a rich library of thought leadership resources and member benefits, go to www.apg.org. For This Week in Health Innovation, my colleague Don Crane and Health Innovation Media, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe. We are in this together and we will get through this together if we toe the line on social distancing, proper hygiene, and by all means, do wear those masks when in public. Bye now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.